This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, we all suffer. And sometimes we suffer quietly. Uh, things that we've done that has originated our suffering. Sometimes it's the suffering uh, that's been caused by other people or outside forces. And uh, so uh, sometimes we suffer from a combination of those things. And sometimes it seems just completely meaningless. Like, where is the source of this suffering coming from? But we can all relate to the idea of suffering. You know, uh, for example, um, sometimes somebody else makes a choice that causes you to suffer. Like when you see someone who refuses to stop wearing socks with sandals, you know, this is a, it's a terrible thing. And, um, those of us who are fashion conscientious, we suffer when we, um, when we see that happening, it's someone else's choice, uh, but it affects us. Or, um, some people may even, uh, put on music like Mumford and Sons with intent to enjoy it, but it might cause the people around them, like myself, to suffer. Sometimes we suffer internally, and sometimes uh, we, can, we can see that out loud. So we're all in the midst of suffering from something at any, and at any given time. And with all seriousness, though, uh, we suffer physically, we suffer mentally and emotionally. And so this passage is extremely relevant to us at any time, uh, but it's extremely relevant right now when we are so acutely aware of the suffering going on in the world and all of the people who um, don't have what many of us in Christ City have, which is a means and a place to social isolate. There's so many people um, who had just climbed out of poverty, falling back into poverty because of this. And there's so much global suffering, death, and vulnerable people who are dying. And so it gives us uh, a lot of pause, uh, it gives us fear. Um, and, um, it's something that we can talk about, uh, this morning and gain something from. So in, uh, this passage, it's really interesting because, uh, the writer Peter, he talks about that there is a kind of suffering that's actually filled with grace. Um, and in, in the NIV and other translations, it doesn't use that word exactly, but it, it actually is the word grace that's being used in the scripture uh, there if you look at it in the Greek. So I'm going to read that again, and I'm going to read it using the word grace where it is in the Greek. It says, for it is a grace if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. That word in the Greek is charis. <laughs> Verse 20, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is a grace before God. So again, there's another uh, part in the passage uh, later on where he uses that a third time. So that this idea that suffering can produce grace. So that word charis or charis in the Greek, one of the definitions it says, that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, 
uh, i.e. a grace of speech. So it's interesting to think that this a type of suffering that happens to us, not because of our own doing, but because of another outside source, the way we respond to it can be like a graceful type of speech before God. This same exact word, I'm using a transliteration pronunciation, charis, is used to speak of Mary in Luke 1.30. It says, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor or charis with God. You have found grace with God. This is, this is a difficult thing in the scriptures. In fact, before right, the verse before this, um, Paul is referring to an ancient version of a slave uh, dealing with this situation. So a uh, house servant, which is very different from the chattel slavery that the United States and Europe and other places practiced um, not too long ago. So there's a close association there. And I have a personal um, problem, and I feel taken aback when I first read these types of scriptures, for sure. And they've troubled me in different ways for many years. Uh, for example, one of the reasons this is so difficult is, is because, you know, during the civil rights movement period in the United States, 50s, 60s, and, and in, into the 70s, um, you know, the people, the, the U.S. government, state government, and uh, even, even more local governments were, were telling um, black African-American people that uh, they should only use nonviolent ways to protest for their rights. But the double standard was glaring there because the state and the local government and uh, small militias of different th people like the KKK and things like that, and the, and the government at large only used violence or often used violence as a way to protest. And so there was a double standard. There was violence is okay for the powerful, um, but it's not okay for those who are without power. Uh, it's also in the ways that people have been abused and have been counseled in misinterpretations of these scriptures to allow an abuser to continue to abuse them. It's almost this idea that, that might makes right, that if somebody has the power to enforce something, that because they are, because there is fear from the person without the power, that somehow that person's right simply because they have the power to, with violence, enforce something. Uh, it's, it's like the uh, do what I say, not what I do, right? And you parents, you've probably found yourself in that situation before where you are counseling or admonishing your child and you realize, even as you say it, yeah, I do this thing I'm telling them not to do. But this is the dramatic difference with Jesus. If we think about a passage like Philippians 2, we hear about this Jesus who had all power and yet did not use violence to enforce and to keep his power or to tell other people what to do, but emptied himself of his power and became a servant and eventually um, was killed for those power grabs from other people. He was killed by those things. And this is a unique thing in history because 
as as we were talking about in the beginning, uh, none of us can get away from suffering. And so this example of how Jesus suffered at the hands of power, even though he himself was powerful, is a unique moment in history. It has been reproduced in different ways since then in different ways, um, not the same as Jesus, but in similar ways. But at this time in history, this was an incredibly clear example. And the fact that he was God incarnate doing this, the most all-powerful one, it struck a chord with these early Christians. It's interesting, Peter is not talking to the powerful in this letter. So he's, he's talking to people without power, which makes me think that most of the Christians, if not even all of the ones he was speaking to, he was making the assumption that those who were coming to faith in Jesus were not the ones with the power to control through violence um, large groups of people. Uh, there's a quote uh, from a historian named Thomas Cahill that I think encapsulates the uniqueness of Jesus's suffering. And I wanna read this for you. And uh, if anybody wants it, uh, you can you can let me know, and I can I can post it for you afterwards. Jesus's suffering body is surely his ultimate gift, for it is his final act of sympathy with us. For all from all ages, human suffering has been the stumbling block that no life can avoid, and that no philosophy has been able to comprehend. In the Hebrew Bible. Bible's book of Job, God refuses to explain why good people must suffer. In the New Testament, he still does not explain, but he gives us a new story that contains the first glimmer of encouragement, the only hint of an explanation, that heaven has ever dined to offer earth. I will suffer with you. The flesh of Jesus is the bread of the poor, the sick, the miserable, the dispossessed, their nourishment. So we have God coming into flesh and reframing something significant about suffering. That while suffering seems so meaningless and cruel and evil, that there's something redemptive about it, that Jesus decides to suffer with us. We're taught and trained to believe that it is violence that can be redemptive, that we can use violence to overcome violence. But Jesus, God in the flesh, comes with a different story and a different narrative that somehow nonviolent resistance through suffering can somehow be redemptive. And so I wonder what it would look like today if we thought about whatever ways that we're suffering physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, what would it look like to embrace that suffering? So we're asked, actually, in this passage to do that very thing. We're asked to follow his example. Um, so Peter says in verse 21, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So this is not 
some kind of passive, fearful running away from violence. And, and that's part, that's part of, of what can be confusing about this. And when I say violence, I don't just mean physical violence. I mean violence that can be done um, through a written law, through the words or the intimidations or threats of a person. And we've all done these things and we've all received these things. Um, but this type of resistance, this, this active suffering that the scriptures here call redemptive, uh, is is something different than that. Um, it, it, it's interesting to think about uh, the Indian leader Gandhi, who helped to liberate India from Britain, um, and his nonviolent, uh, active nonviolent resistance that um, was very powerful and effective. One of the things he said was this: "I do believe that where there is a, only a choice between cowardice and violence, I would advise violence." And I think part of the heart there, and, and he expounds upon this in his different sayings and different teachings, is that um, it takes great passion and anger, which passion is a word that includes suffering in it, in the etymology of it, um, to be able to resist and to suffer for the purpose of something greater than itself greater than the suffering. Uh, someone who is extremely fearful cannot do it without faith, without courage. And not only that, but we see here that this is actually in line with the deepest truths of the universe. How do I know that? Because that's the path that Jesus took, and that's the path that we are to emulate. So I wonder this morning, in any way that you're suffering, is there, is there a way is there a desire even just to ask God, how can this suffering be something other than where I look for someone or something to blame for it, to run away from it, to deflect it, to hide from it? Um, we can blame ourselves for our suffering. We can blame others. We can blame all types of forces. But in the end, if we end, if we stop there, all we're doing is of trying to avoid the suffering that we cannot avoid, that no human being in no status of life can avoid. So what would it mean if we were able to actively embrace it like Jesus, truth incarnate, was able to do? So as we get ready to close, uh, I want to talk about this verse uh, 24. Because I think this is the key for a Christian to be able to uh, engage in this. It says in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So in the ways that we deflect in our suffering, when we, when we look to blame someone or something else, oftentimes it's intertwined with a sense of guilt that we have. So it's difficult for us to get away from and believe that somehow, in the back of our mind, we're being punished for something that we've done wrong, for some uh, bad choice that we've made. Or we look at other people and we think the same things about them because the suffering itself 
is so scary and guilt the 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 feeling that we are we have done something wrong and sometimes that gets twisted into and therefore we are wrong are such powerful forces they can keep us from being able to think about anything except for redemptive violence instead of redemptive suffering but here we see here we see this mystical thing about Jesus that he himself bore our sins so that we might die to the sin and live to righteousness. If we are able to take that into us and continue to try to understand that in our hearts and our minds and our soul, we become beings who are more likely to be able to enter into suffering, knowing that our wrongdoings and all of those things do not make us have to deflect and run from the suffering, but that Christ for those things. And therefore, we are able to follow after him into the suffering that he modeled for us. And that somehow, in some way, because we're not meeting violence, whether metaphorical or literal violence, with more violence, but instead with compassion and passion, that we are in line with the deepest truths of the universe that God has given us. And so, Christ City, uh, my uh, beloved friends and uh, fellow followers, I want to leave you today with this quote from someone who learned a lot from both Gandhi and Jesus Christ, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Speaking of this method of nonviolent redemptive suffering, he says, the method of nonviolence is based on the conviction that the universe is on the side of justice. It is this deep faith in the future that causes the nonviolent resistor to accept suffering without retaliation. This belief that God is on the side of truth and justice comes down to us from the long tradition of our Christian faith. There is something at the very center of our faith which reminds us that Good Friday may reign for a day, but ultimately, it must give way to the triumphant beat of the Easter drums. Alleluia, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Love you, Christ City. Be safe, be blessed, have a good week.